don't know if you're going to see the count now. Mm -hmm. Welcome to another episode of Main Unstream. Today I'm joined again on the mic by a good friend, Simon Michaud, Associate Professor, Aussie living out of, uh, living in Finland and advising large corporates and governments in a, um, a variety of areas, specifically with regard to resources, uh, of, uh, money, finance, and just about everything which really relates to how we as a species are going to survive on this planet. Um, and I realise that sounds a little bit dramatic, but quite frankly, if we were to narrow it down to the bare bones, that's what it sort of comes down to. Simon, welcome. How are you going, mate? G'day, mate. How are you doing? Hi. I, uh, I'm part of a geological survey of Finland, and every now and then different parts of the Ministry of Finland, but also the European Union, come and talk to us and they ask for our data. There you go. Yeah. That's it. So, there, you, yeah. there you go, because I, I sounded pretty doomsday then, didn't I? Far out. <laughs> but quite frankly, um, today we're going to have a you know, welcome back, by the way. Thank you very much. But anyone who um, missed the last episode with Simon, we, we, we went and talked quite in, detailed, uh, in detail about the uh, energy resources and reserves of the planet. If you haven't seen that, I encourage you to go to the playlist on YouTube and watch it. If you're listening to this on the podcast, uh, both for this episode and uh, and for the previous one, I would highly recommend you go to the YouTube channel because then you'll be able to see all the slides that Simon's referring to because he's prepared some, um, some ex excellent data to back up what he's going to be telling us about. And today, we're going to be looking at the fragility of the financial system. A lot of people just don't want to know about it. They don't believe that we have any problems. Life is just going to go on. Um, you know, people will keep earning money. People will keep uh, printing money, um, providing they're called a government and not a counterfeiter. And um, everything's going to be... <laughs> Everything's gonna be honky dory, but as I tell people, you can't. Make, no one can make money. Only a government can. Only a central bank can make money. But um, Simon, you've you've got some pretty revealing data to share with us today, and I know yep. we've got a lot to get through. So um, where would you like? To I'll just hand over to you. You tell me, and um, yep. we'll go. All right. Through. Okay. Share. Yeah, I'll just add that to the. Um... I can send you the slide stack too if you need. Now, um, now I'm not an economist. What? has happened here is I was required to dig into this to understand this to understand something I'd gotten hold of in a previous study. I was trying to understand the oil industry and in particular uh, what ends up uh, what, what we now call the petrodollar, which we'll go into later in the presentation. I also found that um, derivatives, the uh, credit default swaps uh, were uh, a wash throughout the global economy and the most commonly traded commodity within that set was oil right so that's how i got to going down this particular rabbit hole and so and, yeah and that's really your bailey we get oil and resources is something that you know a lot about so i imagine that just you know came up as a big red light for you uh the it turns out if you look into the energy sector you must look into the financial sector and that uh, we'll, we'll get into the uh, why that is later, but they, but they are joined at the hip, right? Uh, and um, when when we get to the uh, history of the financial system and we talk about the decoupling of the gold standard of the US dollar, and a few years later, the petrodollar agreement forced the rest of the world to engage in the US fiat currency um, system, and everything had to be paid for in, in uh, US dollars. 
right? And so it, it, it became the ha the handover point. And I've also got the structure of the financial system um, as well to, to show the, the role of big banks and hedge funds, right? You know, how, how big they are and, and, and where they are. So anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get to all that. It's... Um, I must admit, when I went down this particular rabbit hole, I found a lot of people saying, I'll oh, just leave this to the economists. But I found that mainstream economics has really let us down. Uh, they've really dropped the ball on this one. So anyone listening who is encouraged to look at these things, take the time to educate yourself. You can be wrong, but you can also correct yourself. Mainstream uh, pundits for this sort of thing, I found to be most disappointing. And, and we are heading towards cool. a very difficult situation. So, all right, let's get into it. <clears throat> um, I'll just roll along and you just ask me questions whenever, yeah? Yep, fair enough. Yep, okay. This is where we were at the end of the last podcast, right, where uh, this is um, all the um, metals that, the, that, that are tracked by the World Bank to look at the um, health of the, of the global economy. And what I did was actually overlaid those price prices for aluminium, iron ore, copper, lead, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I pinned it to the month December 2001 and the number 100. So that is actually their pin to this point here. I've actually done the same point for back to 1970, and we can go through that later to work out what happened back here. But you had a relative period of stability and everything blew out in 2005. And so a case can be made that that, this um, is a blowout. It's a chain reaction that started in the oil industry. And the global financial crisis of 2008 was the weakest link broke, which happened to be in the US housing system, um, after unprecedented pressure put under the system. And that was for a couple of years before it actually broke. So, and, and then after the GFC crisis, we have the, still vol the same volatility, but it's now held together with quantitative easing. So since 2008, it's been held together with chewing gum and positive thinking. So um, when we're talking... We're going yeah. to get into quantitative easing later on, right? Yeah, we are. Yeah. I mean, I've got some, uh, in fact, I've, I've, I've got some details of what it is and how it got here. And and you, you, you it will make your hair curl, you in particular. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can feel the roots tingling already. Uh, most of it, when I, when I first looked at, looked down this rabbit hole, uh, uh, my first instinct is surely I've got this wrong. You know, surely it's not that's not the way it's done. But here it is. It's a, it's irrational. Anyway, so the, the the point of this slide is the change that we're looking at started 15 years in the past. It's not something that might happen like next year or or in, sometime in the future. But today's presentation is to show that this situation was created decades ago as in choices made a century ago even brought us here. So anyway, we're, we're told that the everything's fine. This is the Dow Jones industrial um, um, average. Uh, back to 1915, right? And so we're all, well, life's good, never better, right? So well, there's the GFC there. And so the GFC was the largest economic correction in 2008 uh, since the 1929 Great Depression. All right, so I've taken that data, and uh, here's, here's the same data, but now it's actually sort of uh, back to 2000, so we can sort of see a bit of resolution. That's the GFC, Global Financial Crisis, and it was fixed 
by uh, quantitative easing. They just started pumping money into the system and public confidence came back. The whole system's held up by public confidence. Uh, and QE1 finished there, two started there, and two finished there, three started there, and three finished there. That, that's the stuff they've admitted to. Uh, now, to kick this off, uh, the Federal Reserve Chairman, Ben Bernanke, was called Person of the Year for saving the world, which is yeah, smoke and mirrors, yeah. So here is a summary of quantitative easing that's been sort of done uh, globally. It's a mistake to think, for example, only the United States does this, uh, because it turns out all major economies are doing this, and in fact, the, the worst offender is probably China. So these are the dates, and you've got the numbers over here. Um, and Australia, Australia is thinking about doing it at the moment. Uh, they have decided to do it, I believe. Yeah. But they're late to the game. It's And it was now to the point where it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Um, so, so th these are the uh, groups that have uh, um, gone gone through um, the European Union one. That they've just decided to, uh, to um, step in and do these bond purchases, and their reasons for that they stated were a little murky. Like at least the US uh, was able to say, "Well, we've got the GFC. You know, we've got to fix it." Blah blah blah. But most of this stuff happened when we when we didn't have an obvious problem. Which, yeah. Okay. So this is where we were um, at um, last time. Now, what's happened here is is I've taken all the large actions within the United States. The reason I use the United States as the primary example, we'll, we'll get to in a minute. But they they have the bulk of the system, and they're the world reserve currency. Um. But we'll be looking at China and Europe and the UK and all the rest of them as well. <clears throat> all right, so what we've got down in the left-hand column here is all the large purchases of finance at the time. Um, Louisia, uh, uh, the, the state of Louisia purchase back in 1803 was $15 million, but in 2018 dollars it was $212 million. Then we've got the New Deal, the Marshall Plan, Race to the Moon, SNL Crisis. These are all the big ticket items, right? Yep. Right. Well, that blue section there fits into the blue section in the bottom graph, and the bottom graph is military actions in red. This is the cost of war, the Gulf War, Korean War, Vietnam War. What is not on this chart is World War II, which which is actually quite large compared to all of these. Um, and I, could, I, I couldn't fit it on. But when we get to quantitative easing, that's to put this in scale. The quantitative easing oh action... God. That have actually been put uh, that have been put on uh, far dwarf anything sensible. This is the that's the blue section there. This is the stuff that's worth spending money on. All the civilian stuff, all the military stuff. Well, war's a racket, and did we did we really need to do it? So um, now this is the stuff that they've admitted to up till October two thousand and fourteen. Since then, uh, with the the COVID crisis and the year before the COVID crisis. Lots and lots and lots of money has been put in since then. They, in the last few weeks of 2019, they put in six trillion, and for a short period of time, the um, banking sector was 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 being supported by one trillion a day. Uh, now, some of the estimates to so, try and yeah yeah. So, end of last year, they put in triple. Yeah, that's right. Good run, right? And then, right. and 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 it's been like. One trillion a day since COVID, basically, hasn't it? Uh, well, that's what they've 
that's that, it, for for a period of time. But they also claim that they stopped that, right? But I'm I'm now to the uh, of of the belief, and this is the same for all central banks around the world, is it, they're just making shit up. Uh, you know, it, it it's um, they're saying they're doing stuff, but actually sort of finding some numbers to show it's what they're doing um, has been very difficult. So what I've done is I've stopped the numbers at this level because if you don't get it at this level, you're not going to get it. <laughs> Needless yeah. to say that they're printing money at such a level that the destruction of the system is now inevitable. Yeah, right? and, so, and what they're doing with that money, I mean, I'm sure you're probably going to hear this, what they're doing with that money is they're buying, in America at least, they're buying corporate America bonds. Yeah. They're, <clears throat> well, what they did in the first bailouts was they just give it to the banks to hold the banking sector afloat. Right, and the money just disappeared into that black hole. This time round, they're actually buying assets. You know, the, the U.S. Federal Reserve is actually buying corporate assets. You know, real estate, hard assets. So they're taking funny money and they're exchanging it for um, hard goods. And that's interesting because now we've got the U.S. Federal Reserve is 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 not just the United States, but they're buying up stuff all over the planet. Uh, Isn't that the definition of money laundering? Or am yeah. I mistaken? We will get to that, and you will you you will struggle to find any other description. Okay. You, uh, it's it's not just laundering. It's it's um, I, when we when we get there, and I describe how money is created, I'm going to ask you how how this should be described. Because okay. So, and, 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 and this is yeah. Sorry, I was going to say I know we're talking about US right now, but you highlighted yeah. already this is not just the US. This is happening all over. All over. The world. All over the yeah. world, and the worst offenders are probably China, yeah. right? But it doesn't matter because everything's so interlocked. So <clears throat> this time round, they're actually uh, buying hard assets, and and the U.S. Fed is becoming um, um, is uh, now has quite a large portfolio. Now, what's interesting is what happens when you have a government institution merging with large corporate assets. We're seeing the restructuring. Of our financial system, it's it's the 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 it's a different set of rules, and when the curtain lifts in a few years or whenever you know COVID finishes, and we also you know all right, uh, what does the world look like now? It's it's going to be quite different. So before we get into the next part, this is to show that everything's actually connected. <clears throat> this was a study that was done. Um, hang on, there's the actual. Uh, study done by the um, uh, University of Zurich in Switzerland, where they looked at the network of corporate control. And what they did, they wanted to know who owns what. And the first analysis ever conducted, Swiss economic researchers uh, got a global network analysis of 43,000 of the most powerful transnational corporations drawn from a sample of 30 million, uh, 37 million economic actors in the Orbis database, right? So, and the resulting oh. TNC network produced a graph with, you know, 600,000 no um, 600, nodes and 1 million uh, ownership connections. So what they're basically saying is of these corporations, who owns what? You know how companies often own shares in other companies? Yep. Right. So, um, and what they found was everything was connected. Everyone was interconnected. Um, and you had you know, nations, uh, um, firms like, say, the Bank of America owns lots and lots and lots. So the results revealed a, core, revealed a core of 787 firms that control 80% of the network 
and a super entity in a bow-tied structure of 147 corporations that direct contro directly control 40% of revenue. Right. I'm already so, getting the bad feeling about this quantitative easing. I mean, I already had one, but I'm getting the bad feeling about it when I read that, right, hear that, and given that, like, the Fed in the U.S. and it's happening all over the place is buying up company assets. Yep. yep. Physical assets. <laughs> right. Physical assets. Yeah. Now, this is international, right? This is beyond uh, boundaries and everything. But what, what's basically happening, you know, when they have all these Oxfam studies where, you know, 62 people own the same amount of wealth as the bottom, uh, the poorer 3.6 billion. Mm -hmm. And this, this is what they mean. This is where all the money is going. What is not in this analysis is people. Like, who, who are the people that own these companies? Uh, and that's impossible to know because of tax haven law, which we will get to as well. Anyway, so you got this sort of basic sort of structure where... The um, 37 million economic actors of, of the largest groups they could find, right? And they found, like, well, there was a core of 787 corporations that control about 80% of the network directly, and, and, and that's quite a lot of influence for everyone else. Then you had the bow tie structure. Within the bow tie structure, there was 21 hedge funds, uh, and they, they, they didn't really quantify it because the true influence is not really known, right? And, and so, so you had a very centralized structure. And so would this corporate entity do the right and ethical thing with regard to developing society on behalf of humanity at large? <laughs> and, and, and are they democratically accountable? Uh, well, no. Anyways, so here's the top 50 um, shareholders, uh, um, um, the companies in that analysis. You probably can't see it on your screen. But you've got to go all the way down to the, the bottom one, the 50th company, which is China Petrochemical Group, before you get out of the financial system. Every single one of these are financial hedge funds and financial instrument uh, houses. <clears throat> this is to show that um, the banking sector uh, is at the heart of everything. They control everything. Uh, also, what's been happening over time is... Um, in each industry is large companies that are absorbing their colleagues, right? So back in this, it's not very clear. I couldn't get a clearer um, uh, chart. But back in 1990 to 1995, you had the the list along the left of, of banks. And they've all merged over time through mergers into four big banks, Citigroup, JP Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo. Right, so there, there is the banking sector oh. is heavily centralised. Now, um, big banking owns big oil. So US banking, the Bank of America, Morgan Chase, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo, <coughs> and the European banks, which are all connected, by the way, uh, the Deutsche Bank, uh, BNP, Barclays, and several other old European groups, own the four big boys of oil. ExxonMobil, Royal Dutch Shell, uh, BP, and Chevron. Right, so the monopoly over the global economy does not extend. Uh, uh, according to the company 10K filings to the SEC, that is anything larger than 10K, the big banks are among the top 10 stockholders of virtually every Fortune 500 corporation. Right, so, wow. so it's, wow. it's let's just say it's centralised. 
Yep. Right. So how do you think big banking would respond to peak oil? They've also got all the money, so much money where more money doesn't really matter anymore. And what motivates them is probably power and staying in power. If you've got all the money, more's not going to matter. All right. Um, can you see that slide? US dollar euro? <coughs> yeah? Has it come up yet? Yep. I can see okay. that. Yep. Yeah. Okay. <coughs> this is the um, uh, money su uh, money supply in circulation uh, from 1995 to 2013. Now, um, this is to show that the US dollar uh, has the lion's share of it and, and the euro. Before that, you had the Deutschmark and the French franc. <clears throat> but the orange section, which is this other, that's where groups like Russia and China sit. Right. So in, in the finance world, it's it's all about the US dollar and it's all about the euro. Uh, and they're also heavily interconnected, um, as in, in their currency reserve base, they have large portions of each other. So if one crashes, the other will follow pretty quickly. So it doesn't really matter who goes first. So this is this is total money supply, not not. This is current uh, money supply and circulation. I think this is M one. M one. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. So this is uh, one of the books I. Uh, hey. So you need to get tested. I need to get tested. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a. Sorry. I've got a tickle in my throat. Damn um, yeah. Chinese airport. <laughs> <laughs> or the other one is, yeah, India was terrible. Um, <clears throat> so, so, no, Italy, Italy was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. So this is a, a job, um, a book written by um, James Ricketts. He he did a lot of game theory stuff with the Pentagon. Uh, the, uh, the Pentagon did some game theory work on what would happen in a financial crisis. Right. And so um, he wrote a couple of books, and this is one of them. In the in the U.S. golden era of prosperity, that's the 1950s and 1960s, for every dollar of debt created, a ratio of $1 to $2.41 was in effect. That is, for every dollar printed, $2.41 in economic growth was generated. In 1970, just before President Nixon decoupled the gold standards to the U.S. dollar, the ratio was $1 to $0.41. For every dollar of debt created, $0.41 cents of economic growth was generated. In 2014, that ratio had fallen to $1 to $0.03 cents for every dollar of debt created. $0.03 cents of economic growth was generated. So it's not sustainable or even useful in the short term. The currency, current state of the US economy is the currency is now so debased that its purchasing power has been reduced by 97%. Right. Now, that's a quote from the book. Now, that is actually something that... Um, I've not. Uh, that, that was back in uh, uh, 2013. Now here we are, mm -hmm. seven years later. What is the real number now? And and I haven't been able to find uh, a sensible answer. Like, has it devalued further, or has it got to a, like an asymptote where it's just not worth? It it it's just reached a saturation point. Right. So for the past 40 years, the U.S. government debt creation has been approximately twice the rate of economic growth. This is um, this. Spiraling volume of debt since the 1970s has been unprecedented uh, until then. What has facilitated to continue this working this was the Saudi Arabian commitment to price all of their oil contracts in US dollars. This is the petrodollar agreement. For the last 20 years, the increase in debt can be related to the higher cost of energy. As the cost of energy went up, there was a need to increase the volume of debt to the system to maintain growth. 
Right, so now we're starting to see the, the uh, money and energy is actually connected. Um, through this uh, presentation, I um, 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 used some ideas that I saw in Chris Martinson's The Crash Course. Uh, these are, uh, they, they um, it's peak prosperity now, Chris Martinson and Adam Taggart. The work that these guys do is excellent. They have managed to describe very clearly to the layperson some of these really complicated um, problems. These are their two books. I can recommend them. Um, and in fact, when we get to the money creation section, what I've done is done my own version of what they presented. So uh, kudos Excellent. to them. So great reading material. Yeah, tip to the hat. Uh, and there's the multimedia presentation down there. It's like a, a 26 chapter uh, YouTube uh, that, it, that runs you through what's happening here. So, Fantastic. Right. And, and, and you'll, you'll, you'll be able to make these slides available so that anyone yes. who wants yes. to can, can click through that link later on. Yeah, yep. without any right. cool. I can send you those slides. It's 44 meg uh, in PowerPoint, so I'll turn it into a PDF to make it smaller. Appreciate that, mate. Thank you. <clears throat> All right. So let's get into a bit of history. Um, now, we can go back further, but there's been quite a few decisive uh, points. What perhaps the most decisive was the choice to form um, a centralized bank, Federal Reserve Bank, um, in 1913. It was actually enacted in 1916. Uh, the book on the right-hand side, The Creature from Jekyll Island by uh, Edward Griffin, G. Edward Griffin, that's uh, uh, as good as any sort of discussion of you know, what, what we're looking at here. This institution had the authority to lend money into existence and set federal interest rates and set required banking reserves. The formation of the Federal Reserve happened behind closed doors in secrecy by people who would benefit the most. Basically, all the rich guys got together, and today it would be considered illegal. Uh, in, yeah. two, in 2008, the terms of the bailout was written by the banks. Right? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I mean, isn't that putting the fox in charge of the hen house? That, that's exactly what happened, right? But when you, as you look at the nature of the system, that was inevitable because that's what happened here too. In doing so, the Federal Reserve could step in and prevent financial panics from happening. Right. That. Um, so it was formed. That that's actually the um, newspaper clipping that is often used. Uh, Woodrow Wilson declared the, in his mem memoirs that he'd done a terrible thing. And he wished he didn't. Um, in the early 1900s, the American financial system was quite strong and prosperous. Industry was booming. Uh, the future looked very promising, but in 1907, there was a severe economic downturn, a financial crisis that took place over a three-week starting period uh, when the New York Stock Exchange fell almost 50% from its previous uh, peak of the previous year. <clears throat> this was called the Panic of 1907. The panic was triggered by a failed attempt in October 2000, 1907 to corner the market in stock for the United Copper Company. J.P. Morgan stepped in as the lender of last resort. The banking sector and the voting public called for reform. Now, what's interesting is where did that panic in 1907 come from? Um, there is a school of thought that that was actually an orchestrated event amongst the big boys of finance. And the very same people who actually would then later write the Federal Reserve Act because it was, it was written for them. Right. Yeah. So... 1910, influential bankers met uh, in, in secrecy. In attendance, Senator Nelson Aldrich, Nelson Rockefeller's maternal grandfather, um, 
Piat Andrew, an economist for the Secretary of the Treasury, Frank Vanderlip, President of the National City Bank of New York, Henry P. Norton, President of Morgan's First National Bank, Paul Moritz Warburg, uh, a German who's a partner in the New York Banking House of Kuhn and Loeb, Benjamin Strong, an aide to JP Morgan, and Paul Warburg. And Paul Warburg was credited as the architect of the bill. The bill passed in the House with an overwhelming majority. Right, and then in the Senate. So the, uh, the US Federal Reserve was, was established with three key objectives maximum employment, stable prices, moderate long term interest rates, and they're made up of 10 member banks. And the 10 member banks at the inception were these Rothschild Bank of London, Warburg Bank of Hamburg, Rothschild Bank of Berlin, Lehman Brothers of New York, Lazard Brothers of Paris, Kahn-Lewer Bank of New York, Israel Moses CF Banks of Italy, Goldman Sachs of New York, Warburg Bank of Amsterdam, JP Morgan Chase of New York. Perhaps you recognize some of those names. Oh, every one of them. <clears throat> right. Now, question. Where is the federal government of the United States on that list? <laughs> and how much did we get? Um, right. So it's, 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 it, it was the, a private sector banking um they got together and say, "Hey, let's let's change the system for our benefit, and we'll get the government to go along." Right, and they did. Right. So the key laws affecting the reserve have been the Banking Act, the Employment Act, Federal Reserve Department Accord, uh, Federal Reserve Treasury Department Accord of, Bank Holding Company Act of, and amendments, Federal Reserve Reform Act, 19 International Banking Act, Full Employment Balance Growth Act. Depository Institutions Deregulation and Money Control Act, Financial Institutions Reform, Recovery and Enforcement, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation Improvement Act, and the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act. So it's a massive transfer of wealth from one demographic to another. And do you know, to this day, the Federal Reserve has never been audited? Right. <coughs> so who, in 1970... Why did that not surprise me? Well, it's the nature of the system. You find the average person in the street, you go, no, no, that's not possible, or, or, or that's ridiculous. You know, uh, um, everything's fine. You know, st st stop it with your shit. Yep. Um, uh, all right, so who owns the Federal Reserve Bank? This is a, found in an appendix in a report, but it re references a um, Federal Reserve Director's A Study of Corporate and Banking Influence, Staff Report, Committee on Banking, Currency and Housing, House of Representatives in the 94th Congress, second session, August 1976. Right. So this is actually a map. They attempted to reform the Federal Reserve back in 1977. Yeah, it didn't work, obviously. But anyway, this is who owned them at the time. Who actually owns the shareholders? Right at the top of the chain, Rothschild, NM Rothschild, London Bank of England. They've since changed their names. You've got Brown, you've got... Morgan, Lazard Brothers, Montague, Lehman Brothers, Kuhn Loeb. Um, we've got Citibank, Rockefeller. There's multiple Rockefellers in here. Uh, J.P. Morgan, Baker, more Rockefellers. Yeah. Anyway, so you, you get you get the idea. Schiff, yep. Harriman, uh, the, the same groups that formed it in the beginning still owned it. You know what? You know, you know several decades later. Uh, the, it's it's people think this is a conspiracy theory, but 
these these rich guys own the bank. It's as simple as that. And if you ever wonder where the where the where the name or the concept of an old boys club came in, yeah, well, yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, now, yeah. so so then in two thousand and nine, this was the latest one I could find. Who owns the Federal Reserve? Um, now, at this time, we've got um, tax haven law in progress, so so mm -hmm. we can't actually know the people behind the actual companies, which is why tax havens are in place. Uh, so we've got Bank of America owns the um, at the time most of it, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, and Citibank. So the big four banks uh, own most of it, and then you had some minor shareholders. So the question. Which of these banks got bailouts in 2008? <laughs> so, uh, uh, they all did. Yes. Right. So then we get to the... Um, if, if, if I may, if they hadn't yeah. been bailed out, you know, if they caused, they caused the bullshit Yep. 2008, if they hadn't been bailed out, they knew that if they hadn't been bailed out, the whole finance, and the government knew the whole financial system was probably going to be taken down. That is true, and it got within a few hours of that happening. I think they got to within five or six hours of full paralysis. The problem is the system is so fragile uh, that any sort of knock like that would have completely destroyed it, right? So, and what made it so fragile were decisions and choices made decades before. Yeah. Right? So it's not, it's not an, a, an easy fix, and they're really looking into the abyss and even if they will, if we play by the rules, not only are we are dead, but the system will break back to its fundamental value, which was virtual. Right. So they yeah. were looking like. And so they put a band-aid. Yeah. So they put sorry they put a bandaid on a broken arm basically from in two thousand and nine, yeah. and now eleven <laughs> years later. It's a, the choice was like, for example, if you're standing next to an exploding nuclear bomb and asking whether it's kiloton class or megaton class. <laughs> you're just as dead <clears throat> so yeah. I, I don't know the right answer uh, um, here what they could have done if they were sensible about it they could have printed the money but then they could have come clean and said right okay we've now got a problem we are now going to rebuild a new system but that would mean they actually give up power and that, that's not going to happen so but the, the, the nature of the system was was truly boned and there, there were no easy ways out. There were no, there were no polite um, ways. To, and we're in that same situation now, as it turns out, only worse. <clears throat> this is back to the structure. <clears throat> oh, it looks terrible. Oh. <clears throat> um, most central banks in the world are administered by the BIS, which is the Bank of International Settlements. This was um, uh, started by um, uh, the, one of the Rothschilds banking holding systems. And it became the BIS. What it is, is it's a central bank that rec that advises all other central banks. So the central banking systems all over the world. As of the year 2000, there were seven countries without a bank of international settlements administered central bank. And they were Afghanistan, Iraq, Sudan, Libya, Cuba, North Korea, and Iran. As of 2000, <laughs> there were five countries, Sudan, Libya, Cuba, North Korea, and Iran. And in, in 2011, there were three countries, yeah. Yeah. Cuba, North Korea, and Iran. Now, put this in context. There's the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. There's the war in Libya and Sudan. And there is the attempted war in Iran and North Korea. And yeah. since since around 2012, 20, uh, uh, there, thereabouts, the 
things for the um, Anglo banking cartel have just not gone to plan. And the real trouble started when um, in Syria, when they tried yet another one of these wars in Syria, the Russians intervened. Right, and that, and that put the kibosh on their plans for that. And that was the first time they were openly challenged. Uh, but that right there is, you know, you, you got the link between, um, you know, give war a chance. Um, so you have like this relationship. Um, the chart shows a relationship for the majority shareholders, the banks, the majority shareholders and oil companies. This is within the United States and electrical utility companies, implying monopoly of currency issuing oil and electrical utility entities by the Fed majority shareholders. So you have a situation where uh, there's the trilateral commission in the in the center, <clears throat> and so you have um, you have this sort of situation where the main shareholders who own the U.S. Fed also happen to own all the other things as well, and so you have this system where a very small number of people hold enormous amount of authority across lots of areas. And so they're, they're operating in a way where they're favoured and everyone else is drained. Mm. So, um, yeah. So, yeah. all right, that, that, that's, the, that's your basic structure. Um, uh, of course, there's more to it than that, but you know, it's just a taste. And right. the petrodollar agreement again was when? Oh, we'll get to that. 1973, yeah. that's coming. Right. I'm trying to do this in a chronological order. Okay, the Great Depression, 1929. Instead of preventing panics, the Federal Reserve provided the mechanism that facilitated a massive speculative bubble. And when the bubble burst, it created the Great Depression. Uh, the U.S. money supply contracted by almost a third in volume, and the U.S. administration approached the point where it was required to declare itself insolvent. Right, so depressions happen and everything, and there's a great deal of debate around, you know, uh, what this was or what caused it, was it necessary and all that. So anyway, so what happens in these situations and what do people do about it? Like the governments, for example, can we trust them? Uh, in 1933, <laughs> US President Roosevelt ordered the confiscation of all gold holdings from all sectors. Uh, now this is the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot happening behind the scenes on this one, including privately held assets of citizens, and they enacted Executive Order 6102, forbidding the hoarding of gold coin and gold bullion and gold certificates within the continental United States. Assets, gold assets, would be turned over to the Federal Reserve Bank in exchange for US dollars and, in some cases, gold certificates. At this time, the US dollar was backed by the gold standard. Now, uh, I don't know if they actually got as far as you know going and confiscating the gold, but this is this is the what they suggested to everyone. But this is sort of when the US broke with the gold standard in internal philosophy. Later, they, they uh, what they told the rest of the world was, you know, we're backed by gold. But actually, the, they themselves broke that philosophy internally. And in 1931, you know, two years earlier, um, the Bank of England did the same thing. So, you know, the, the, the Great Depression really did create a maelstrom of difficulty right around the world. So assets gained by the Federal Reserve in this action was estimated $11 billion. So the Federal Reserve gained absolute control of the entire gold reserves of the most powerful economically, politically, and military nation on the earth at the time. In exchange for $11 billion, it created a thin air. <laughs> they printed it. Um, this is an excellent example of how nation-state governments will change the rules and even break the law to achieve its goals in times of stress. <clears throat> yeah, so... That brings us to 1944, you know, World War II had happened, 
this was the gathering of the world's most powerful economic nations, who incidentally had just won World War Two. <laughs> uh, to meet and form the Bretton Woods Agreement, where all of the currencies were at some level tied to the gold standard. Uh, in recognition that the US represented more than half the world economy at the time and controlled most of the gold, the US dollar was made the de facto world reserve currency, and all other currencies were pegged to the US dollar. And it ushered in a era of economic prosperity relatively free of risk. This was the golden era. <clears throat> so the graph on the left there, you can see, you see uh, that in the, the number of countries having banking crises in each year since 1800, the Bretton Woods era was an unprecedented era of stability. Hmm. So uh, curious. Now, the system was flawed. Uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve could print money, and it did, because every time the U.S. wanted to do something, it could just spend money and then print money to balance the books. And it wanted it was it, it, it set itself up as the heart of an, of an empire without saying so. So a lot of money was spent geopolitically, especially you know things like the Cold War and the arms race and all that. The Vietnam War was very expensive. So the system was flawed. There was no prevention to limit the Federal Reserve creating more dollars and expand the U.S. money supply. <clears throat> it soon became clear that more U.S. dollars in circulation than the same value of gold, and that the U.S. dollars were devaluing. French President Charles de Gaulle demanded that French U.S. dollar holdings be converted back to gold and returned to France. And the gold <laughs> reserves were depleting and becoming very low. Right. So for half a century, Americans could trade uh, $20.67 for an ounce of gold. That was the rate. And to help combat the depression faced with mounting unemployment, the U.S. government found it could do little to stimulate the economy. And to deter people from cashing in on deposits and depleting the gold supply, the U.S. and other governments had to keep the interest rates high, but it made it too expensive for people or a business to borrow. And that is the environment that they did the um, Auto 6102, the hoarding of gold. Um, they'd lost control, basically. So in 1933, <coughs> uh, Roosevelt cut the dollar's ties with gold, allowing governments to pump money into the economy at lower interest rates. Most economists now agree 90% of the reason why the U.S. got out of the Great Depression was the break with gold. Uh, claims one author, Lords of Finance, uh, Leo Kurt Ahmed. In 1971, things had gone too far. Nixon ended the Bretton Woods System Agreement and decoupled the dollar from the gold standard to stop dollar-flush foreigners from sapping gold reserves. Hmm. So, so uh, understanding gold has to be understood. Uh, oil, um, finance, and gold are the three pillars of the system that you need to understand. Yeah. yeah. So, people, I mean, basically, other other current other countries had lots of U.S. dollars. Yeah. Um, and since it was pegged at a a fixed rate to gold, they're like, okay, we don't we don't trust you. Just give yeah. us gold. Of course, the U.S. news yeah. is not going to be beneficial to them, so they yeah, that's right. And the problem agreement with and the U.S. had put themselves at the center of a situation, and but they they didn't they didn't curtail their spending responsibly, knowing that they could just you know balance their budget by printing more money. They didn't understand the long term implications of that. So here's tricky dicky. Uh, <laughs> so with the removal of the last restraint of the gold standard requirements, the Federal Reserve could print as much money as it liked. Dollars are loaned into existence through debt, uh, through debt and the debt. U.S. debt ballooned from this point. 
<laughs> With the benefit of 20, 2020 hindsight, it's become clear that the United States has used its geopolitical position to further its interests to increase its footprint on the global market, much like what the Chinese are doing now. Uh, the Anglo-American banking elite were able to secretly establish and maintain their power by writing off the success of World War II. Uh, so uh, this is another book to, to read, The Tragedy and Hope uh, by Carol Quigley. It's an old book, um, but some of the stuff that, that it, 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 it's highly relevant understanding how we got here. This brings us to 1973 and the Petrodollar Agreement. <clears throat> now, Petrodollar is any oil purchase or trade by an oil exporting country to be done in US dollars. At the time, um, up until 1970, the US was the largest oil producer in the world. And Saudi Arabia took over their position around then. Okay. Okay. So the oil was coupled with oil production. The US dollar was coupled with oil production. By pricing all contracts in USDs forming the petrodollar, Saudi Arabia became the dominant producer. In exchange, the U.S. military would protect the House's sword from all adversaries, domestic and foreign. Hmm. Right. So the House of Sword basically got them their their bodyguard to stay in power, and the U.S. got their petrodollar agreement, which was the new reason to be. Now the Bretton Woods was done, and since the dollar was the global reserve currency, all international transactions are priced in dollars. Now what that meant was that petrodollar agreement forced the entire global market to use and engage in the US dollar fiat currency system, which was ballooning in debt. And we had no choice. <clears throat> so read these two books, The American House of Sword, The Secret Petrodollar Connection by Stephen Emerson, and The House of Bush, House of Sword, uh, The Secret Relationship Between the World's Two Most Powerful Dynasties. Right, that lays it out pretty clearly. <laughs> right. So what does that look like? So here we get to this point where we uh, have um, the same data as before that I showed you in the beginning of the presentation, but now I've actually pinned the month 1970, January, and the number 100, and that's here. <clears throat> and so prior to that, you know, um, things are pretty stable. You know, not If you zoom in on that, it will expand out. But... In 1973, the oil embargo and petrodollar agreement, that, that was the first time that they, they were hit with a very serious geopolitical challenge and they just printed their money, printed money out of it. And you can sort of see that that's the full data. Zooming in on uh, the bottom there, you can sort of see the structure itself. Mm -hmm. it, things blew out. So the 1971 um, decoupling uh, decision was actually more significant than the 2005 blowout. Right, and so at at this point, you know, uh, the, the the whole thing was a fiction. So, and then then we go to well, let's just look at the metals like aluminium, copper, and uh, down to nickel, and you're seeing the same structures. And so, uh, from 1971 onwards till about 2003, you've got this relatively stable band, but it's it's still much more volatile than it was before. And then post 2005, it just went crazy. So, um, wow. And there's gold, uh, gold, platinum, and silver, but gold in particular, gold was decoupled from, from money and it became like an asset that, um, you know, the, the, the idea it wasn't money anymore, but central banks used to sort of purchase it and sort of keep it. And, and so this, this is the sort of thing as we move into cryptocurrencies, if we move into cryptocurrencies, but it, it's this kind of decision. 
that has these kind of ramifications. Right. So that brings us to this graph that I showed you in the last uh, podcast is where I've actually sort of indexed GDP and oil production to the number 100 and the year 1965. And so things were pretty good for, uh, they overlaid beautifully. And then when they decoupled from the gold standard, they started to diverge. And that's what that chart now looks like now. You, you mentioned cryptocurrencies, right? So, yeah. Um, okay, gold is something you'd physically touch and hold and mold <coughs> yep. into jewelry or statues yep. or whatever the hell you want to mold it into, right? But a fiat currency, there is no difference between a fiat currency and a cryptocurrency. That is correct. That is, in, in fact, a fiat currency. Um, Everything happens behind closed doors, and no one knows what's going on. And some monkey um, monkey business comes out. But a fiat currency is actually much more transparent. Now, all of these systems will work if we have a agreement in um, if we have agreement on how we're going to use these systems, right? If if everyone agrees to the rules and everyone follows the rules, it'll work as a, a medium of exchange. It, it's when people in in positions of authority do not. Uh, do that and and weaponize the laws for their own benefit. That's when things fall apart. Uh, and so now we're down to human nature. Is it going to work? I don't know. So so the whole cryptocurrency idea was what you see is what you get. You can actually check what it is. Um, will it work? I <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah. I do think that if governments can't collect tax in some form, then it won't be allowed. So no, sure, but what's the relevance of governance? You know, let, let's let's not go too far down. That was probably a different, yeah. probably probably for a topic for a different uh, a different conversation. But you know, bottom line is what is it the governments left to do? Um, civil defence, national defence, um, infrastructure. Uh, you know, when you have communities as big as Facebook and whatever. If they were to, if because they have the marketplace, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Google, they have the marketplace, they have the people, they are their own countries of a billion people plus. If yeah. they have currency, what's left? See, you've got the problem of all of these human systems that we've done so far, like you know, capitalism, socialism, communism, fascism, even, they're all based around the idea of growth, right? That the future is larger than the past. Now, now that we've hit some uh, uh, energy barriers, that's not going to happen anymore unless unless something spectacular happens. But but the way what things look at the moment is the future cannot be more energy rich than the past. Which now it's when we're gearing into the economics of contraction, not the economics of growth. And any given human system that we've got so far is not going to work. Right. So we're we're in an unprecedented time in in context of what do we do now? Uh, the, the traditional way of managing something when there's not enough to go around is give war a chance. Uh, you know, um, and we're seeing a bit of that at the moment where the very rich um, are hoovering up all the wealth in one form or another and then going to extreme lengths to control and contain the rest of the public. Right? Yeah. So <laughs> it's yeah. a, that's a, that's very, a discussion. <laughs> anyway, um, moving on. Um, so this is what so this we are... So, so uh, um, this is this is such a complicated um, set of uh, concepts that you that you can't deal with quickly. So here's what we're in at the moment, where uh, promises of future goods and services 
versus actual goods and services, the field, physical economy versus the fiat economy, they've diverged. Uh, some of these ideas I, um, I got from reading Gail Tverberg's work. She, she does a, um, a blog called Our Finite World. The link's down below. Um, mm -hmm. I highly recommend people go and look at her uh, blog. She, she does excellent work. She's got a really good handle on how things interrelate. She used to be an actuary. Uh, right? So she's got a, a talent for numbers. <clears throat> and she reviewed one of my reports. And her intellect, uh, her ability to absorb information, understand what it means, is excellent. Anyway, moving on. So we're in this uh, situation where things have diverged, uh, promises versus actual goods, and we're not going to be able to uh, meet those obligations. So, yeah. Okay, so now that we're getting to money creation. Seeing right? a pattern here, by the way. <laughs> yes, most people can. <laughs> there are, in, there are two, two types of money creation in a fractional reserve banking system that's operating at the moment. And You've got the central bank that creates money, but you've also got a commercial bank uh, that creates money by, and we'll go through those in, in, when a deposit of a central bank money is made into a commercial bank, the central bank money is removed from circulation and added to the commercial bank's reserves. It's no longer counted as part of M1 supply. Simultaneously, an equal amount of new commercial bank money is created in the form of bank deposits. All right, so. Yeah. Uh, this is just, it's like a form of alchemy where they just create something out of thin air. The exact mechanism behind the creation of commercial bank has been controversial issue. And they leave it at that. They don't, they just, oh, it's controversial. They don't, they don't know when you actually look at their own documentation. Right. So a central bank is a reserve bank or a monetary authority is the, is an institution that manages the currency money supply and interest rates of a state or formal monetary union and oversees the commercial banking system. Compared to a commercial bank, a central bank possesses a monopoly on increasing the monetary base in a financial crisis. Central banks sets the rules of what can be done. Most central banks also have supervisory and regulatory powers to ensure the stability of member institutions, to prevent bank runs and to discourage reckless or fraudulent behavior by member banks. And central banks in most developed nations are institutionally independent from political interference, as in they're a private institution. It's, it's like uh, the United States is the same as you know, Australia, whereas the money creation supply is no longer attached to a democratically um, a, accountable um, institution like um, a political administration, but they have literally life and death control over our system. And so the richest people the, uh, in the world have just bought their way in. So, yeah, because I mean, you're, you're talking about the member banks. Basically, some of the member banks are the people who run the central bank. That's right. That's exactly right. It, you look behind the curtain, you think, what? <laughs> All right. Um, right. Strap yourself in, Dorothy. You're not in Kansas anymore. Right. <laughs> <clears throat> so, how do we do this fractional reserve banking thing? Like, what they've done is, is, is um, it's, it's not new. Like the first example of fractional reserve banking goes back to, say, the Medici's in the 14th century, 14th, 15th century medieval Europe. That that they've decided to actually make it a the standard in all finance in our industrial economy, I think, was a mistake. Um, what they've basically done is, um, uh, I'm going to go through an example, is um, currently a reserve of 10% is required by the Federal Reserve Bank for a bank to keep which means they could lend out 90% of its deposits and charge interest in doing so. Right. So what does that mean? 
Uh, now, here's a quote that um, I got from um, Chris Martinson in the Crash Course, and it's brilliant. The process which money is created is so simple that the mind is repelled. Uh, John Kenneth Galbraith. True. Watch this. Let's have a, a thought experiment. Mm -hmm. Let's say um, a person has $1,000 and he goes and deposits in the bank. Right, and let, let, let's say this bank is just opening for the first time, and so this is the starting of the deposit. Right, the bank opens zero reserves. At this point, there's one thousand uh, dollars in the banking system, and the bank holds zero in reserve. Uh, and so, according to the Federal Reserve, it, by law, it must keep the ten percent of the fractional reserve, which is one hundred dollars, but it can loan out nine hundred dollars. So the bank loans person two nine hundred dollars. Person two uses the money in the market and spends it by engaging in business A. Right, so $900 is given to business A. Business A needs to deposit the earned money into the bank as an acceptable method of risk mitigation. So business A deposits $900 into the bank. Now, in macro terms, we've got like um, all banks are actually uh, connected together. This is in terms of money supply. And so all banks are treated as one entity in this thought experiment. So at this yeah. point, there's $1,900 in the banking system and the bank holds $100 in reserve. So with $900 in the bank is just received, it must keep 10%, which reserve is $90. So the bank loans out $810 to person three. Person three spends that money at business B and business B now has $810 in earnings, okay? So business B the deposits in the bank, and at this point, the banking system has $2,710, of which it is required to hold just $190 as reserve. Uh-huh. So with the $810 mm -hmm. in the bank that's just received, it must keep a 10% to hold in reserve, which is $81. The bank loans the remaining $729 to person four. Person four uses the money in business C. Business C uh, deposits the money. At this point, the bank has $3,439, of which it's required to hold just $343.90 in reserve. So at this point, we started <laughs> with $1,000, right? Uh -huh. But the bank is owed $4,640.43 over time. Now, if I... <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's right, right. So <laughs> I take the thought experiment. And you keep going for for that original thousand dollars. How many times can it be loaned out? And you get down to well, you get down to ten to uh, nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars and seventy six cents in terms of deposits, keeping the full thousand dollars in reserve. Total revenue um, of um, thirteen thousand four hundred ninety three dollars. But then they charge interest on top of that at three percent per annum compounded monthly, and it looks like this. Right. So, <laughs> right. So, yeah. Money, right. So, so hang on. So, that first thousand dollars was turned into thirteen thousand. Right. And it, what's interesting is backed by physical uh, assets and collateral. People will work to pay that off. Right. So, it's it's actual um, being pulled out of thin air and it's been turned into physical work. Right. So it's also created by uh, money is also created by central banks. Where did that thousand dollars come from? So here are some references. 
there's Jim Rickard's book, uh, and there's a couple of other reference to check up, chase up. Also, <clears throat> check out some of Nicole Foss's work on uh, YouTube. She has done some excellent, excellent work in describing this because she, she thinks in terms of systems, and she's been able to describe this complicated system. Uh, the one I like to uh, hand around is a 2015 interview of Nicole Foss on YouTube. Right. So where did this original $1,000 come from? Well, <laughs> um, okay. The U.S. Congress votes to increase money supply to balance its budget. All right. So that's the first step. The Congress cannot actually do this, so it sends uh, the directive to the U.S. Treasury. Right, so they vote to do it, then the U.S. Treasury said, right, gives the money. The U.S. Treasury prints up a series of bond certificates, Treasury bonds. Now, the Treasury has like a couple of weeks' money supply in hand, so it, it can't you know, just pay for it out of its coffers. Um, yep. So it prints up the Treasury bonds, and then it sells those bonds. <clears throat> Step forward, Treasury bonds are sold in an auction, usually bought by central banks and large private banks around the world. It's a way of foreign nation states to have U.S. money in their own treasury reserve. It's it's also a way of actually sort of, yeah. And it's believed most of these bonds are now purchased by the Federal Reserve Bank anonymously, which is illegal, but that's what they think is happening. Step five, the money is used to purchase the treasury bonds is transferred back into the U.S. Treasury vaults. And step six, the money gets distributed through a variety of government departments and programs, defense spending and social security and what have you. So, okay, that's that's the treasury. So they just printed up some money and they sold it. And they go, okay, off we go. And now we have no more money. Step seven, the Federal Reserve can then buy those treasury bonds from bank from a bank to the open market. The Fed cannot buy bonds directly, according to the law, from the treasury. The Federal Reserve Act specifies it may buy and sell treasury securities only in the open market. The Federal Reserve meets this statutory requirement by conducting its purchases and sales of securities chiefly through transactions with a group of major financial firms, primary dealers, that have established a trading relationship with the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. These transactions are commonly referred to in the open market operations and are the main tool when the Federal Reserve adjusts its holdings. Right, so the Fed just buys it. But hang on, the Fed doesn't have a bank account. Right. So, uh, and it does this by electronically inventing numbers. So the bonds are, uh, you know, the central bank buys the bond by transferring the money to the bank, and it's done by just inventing electronic numbers. The bond has been stopped, swapped by electronic numbers drafted out of thin air. So, this is what we call quantum. And, and I know a lot of people at this point are going to be saying this can't be the way it works, but it is. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's what I'm saying is is go to Chris Martinson's crash course. I think it's chapter seven and eight, where they go through this and <clears throat> watch it about 10 times. And you'll still go, huh, what? So yeah. quantitative easing. What happened in your country, think again. Yeah. Any central bank will do this. Right. Step seven is where the money's created. When the Federal Reserve Bank writes a check or does a money transfer, it does not do so by drawing money from large physical vault. It just creates the money out of nothing and it just edits an electronic database and then loans it to the American taxpayer with interest. Now, from their own publications, you know, from the Boston Federal Reserve Bank, when you or I write a check, there must be sufficient funds in their account to cover the check. But when the Federal Reserve writes a check where there's no bank deposit on the check is drawn, then the Federal Reserve writes a check it is creating money. It's as simple as that. Money is created Creative money is exchange for treasury bond, mortgage-backed uh, securities, and, and or corporate debt. 
and that is now termed quantitative easing. <laughs> what? <laughs> how, how, how is this legal? People go to jail for not paying their taxes. You know, what? So, so you've got this yeah. spiral, you know, where um, there's a perception that the future economy will always grow. And so changes in economic activity, you know, um, changes happen to uh, consumption of everything. Uh, it, prices go up. Changes in the real economy change. Everything depends on, um, this is the energy example, expansion of GDP due to greater revenue flow, which justifies more debt. More debt is considered to generate more capital growth uh, to more generate. More debt is considered to generate capital to stimulate economic growth. Changes to credit and debt, more debt taken on, quantitative easing done by the central bank. And it goes round and round and round. You go, oh, oh, come on, man. So it's a system requirement. The system must grow. And it has to pay for the outstanding debt, which is always larger than the service, the ability to service the debt. You know, that what yeah. is owed is always larger than the principal. And so the rate of change is defined by the interest owed on all the outstanding debt. And that's the, that, that in its nutshell is why the system must grow. So let's look at the, some numbers in terms of, well, how much debt has been held. Now, when you see a flag up in the top right-hand corner, it's, you know, that's the country that's being discussed. This is the U.S. federal um, debt um, by the U.S. Uh, up until 1790, up until 2010. Um, and you can see, uh, see that. Uh, this is where it was in 2015. But the previous graph that you see is a percentage of GDP. And because GDP is going up, you think, oh, it's all good. But actually, we've got a form of inflation happening here. That's the actual debt. Now, in 2014, that debt was 16 trillion, 16.5 trillion. Um, this I don't is, dare ask what today. Well, we, um, you, this is what I uh, pulled up yesterday, uh, or, um, or day before, sorry. This is the US debt clock, uh, usdebtclock.org, and it gives you like a, an up to date version 26.4 trillion. There's a couple of numbers here. <clears throat> U.S. gross domestic product is a little under 20 trillion. Okay, that's the good news. U.S. national debt, 26.4 trillion. U.S. debt GDP ratio, 132 percent. But what's when they say debt? You know what? What do they mean by that? Because well, uh, the, um, U.S. derivatives contracts held by U.S. financial institutions, 686 trillion. Uh, yeah. We'll get to this in a minute, but yeah, the, how is that ever going to be paid back? That's that's what they think so, they're sorry, right. that, that up again? That's not going to be paid back. No, no. U.S. Der derivatives are a are, are a credit default swap. It's a contract. Mm -hmm. these, these are contracts that the U.S. government is owed. It, it, it is is owed and owes in exchange. It's like a, an an exchange system. Some are owed. Some are owed too. Right, but there's 686 trillion uh, US dollars worth of derivatives inside the US government system. Right, <laughs> that's, that's like the powder keg. Now, here's the real problem US unfunded liabilities, things like you know, uh, social security and pension and, 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 and all that, and infrastructure, that's 153 trillion at the moment. That's the stuff that, that, that they're required to do. Right, so so the, these numbers, you know, the, the situation's out of control. So now let's look at how much of this debt has grown under each precedent. Now, 
that's in the beginning there was there was quite a, not very much debt, but uh, lately with each passing president that's blown out of out of proportion. This is the purpose of this slide is to show that this is a systemic thing. It has nothing to do with politics at all. Yeah. Okay, the okay, you're Donald Trump. He he's brought on four point seven eight trillion in his presidency. Okay, he had the COVID nineteen thing, which uh, um, a surprising amount of money has been printed. And George Bush, he oversaw the global financial crisis, which was, you know, that's when the quantitative easing sort of took off. But Barack Obama in the middle had more than both of them, right? So what, what, what was his excuse? They don't give one. Right. Um, right. They, they, they just don't give one. But what, what, what you've got is a situation where this is definitely nothing to do with politics at all. You, uh, you, you see all the pundits at the moment. Everything is Donald Trump's, Trump's uh, fault, but they steer clear of these yeah. sorts of discussions about you know what is actually the nature of the system that underlies everything. Anyway, so that's that's the U.S. The foreign holders of the U.S. debt in 2019. Um, Japan bought a whole lot, and they bought a whole lot um, as part of their you know, even when they printed a lot of money themselves uh, in stimulus. Right, that's what they did with their money. They bought a lot of U.S. debt. Um, yeah, I so, know. Yeah, I know. So, so Japan, Japan wants to buy treasury bonds in the US, so they just issue some ones and zeros on a screen. Yep. And remember, all of these banks are interconnected. And remember mm. the, uh, the, the interconnected uh, corporate ownership as well. So yeah. it's a shell game. It's one big giant shell game. Yeah. Right. So, and so this is the Fed balance sheet. This is the stuff they'll admit to. There's, there's a whole lot of stuff in the shadow banking system. Uh, that is not, it's like off the books. So, so that they, they do a whole lot of stuff that's really sort of dodgy, but this is the stuff they've admitted to. So there's QE1, 2, and 3, um, and we got to about there. And this spike at the end here is COVID-19, the COVID-19 resp uh, response. And I haven't had much data uh, collected for that because I didn't think we'd get the time, but what's happening now really is unprecedented. It's actually much more serious. It, it's another blowout like 2005. So, I mean, not, to, um, not, to, not to blow smoke up Trump's pipe, right? But by on. looking at this, by looking at this, it's sort of like there's 2016 where he comes in and it's sort of, okay, he's taken it over pretty flat from, from Obama by the looks of it, just <clears throat> but he's kept it going flat and then he's then then it's gone down. And Hang on, this little out. got kicked out. Okay. And I got kicked out. <laughs> so we just need to get that presentation back up. Yeah. Yep. So, so okay. I don't know. So, so, where are we? Where are we? Okay. We're we're on... That one, yeah. Yeah, oh, that one. So, yeah. so, so he, he, he starts to reduce it and then. You know, I, I imagine this little dip where there's a little hump there before it goes exponential is is the beginning of, of COVID. Yeah. Time on. Yeah. So, you know, again, not to blow smoke up Trump's pipe because I know there'll be a lot of people watching this will be, you know, for the DNC as opposed to the GOP or whatever. So I don't want to go down that route because you're right. Like you say, this is not about one or the other political party. This it's is a fundamental system. Yeah. And, in fact, all the stuff we're seeing in America at the moment is trying to convince the people with the pitchforks to argue with the people with the burning torches that they're the enemy instead of mm. cooperating and then facing the real set of problems together.
you know, uh, th th yeah. there's there's no there's no discernible difference between uh, these politicians. It's the underlying system. And so, well, well, it makes you it make it begs the question: Who's pulling the strings of the different political parties? There's an error there. But can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So. If both political parties are going after the same, you know, it's running the same basic strategy. Yeah. 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 Um, Can you see that, by the way? Uh, yeah, got the clock up there. Yeah. yeah. So if they're, if, they're, if they're both if they're both run the same strategy, deflecting from the real issue, just covering up the the you know, reality of you know how the system is 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 defunct, then it makes you it makes the, it begs the question: Who's pulling the strings? Who who is there? Who is the overlord? That you know that keeps them in place because without if there's no one above, surely someone would step up and say, you know what, this is all screwed and this is the way it is. But someone's keeping it in place or something. I see it as a uh, see it as a um, criminal organized crime cabal, right? Uh, yeah. That they've gotten hold of everything and they just it's a shell game where the numbers no longer mean anything. So. Um, all right, so so here's here's the that's a conversation that will last hours. We probably yes, another we'll come back and have another one about that. Um, so okay, here's um, the debt clock for uh, other countries. When you see the debt GDP ratio over ninety percent, that is when the economy is now having to go further into debt to maintain that debt and service its own economy. So ninety percent is crossing the Rubicon, mm -hmm. and almost all of these countries have more than that so it's not gonna all right so derivatives mm. this is hilarious you, you thought you thought you'd we, we got to the end of the jokes but no no i'm here all week right what's a derivative a derivative is a financial <laughs> instrument whose value is derived from the value of another asset known as the underlying when the price of the underlying changes the value of the derivative also changes a derivative is not a product but it is a contract that derives the value from changes of the price of the underlying. As far as I can tell, a derivative is a bet on what the future value of something's going to be. Yeah, that, that's my yeah. understanding. Yeah, right. So it was they would it's quite an old institution, but it was deregulated in the early two thousands, uh, the year two thousand, and from that point on, it's just gotten silly. The most crude oil is the most heavily traded in the um, derivatives market landscape so okay <laughs> so what's the derivatives volume so so here is um the top here german gdp this is in 2014 when i did this calculation 2014 3.8 um 88 trillion it's it's a log scale right china gdp mm -hmm. well, at the time was 11.2 trillion europe was 18.59 and us was 17.4 and the global gdp was a little under 80 trillion how, how much in terms of uh, derivatives do you think there is? Just guess. 2014? It's got to be, isn't it? It's got to be like exponentially more, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's a silly number. Look at this. Remember, that's a log scale. <laughs> uh, 1.28 quadrillion. Now, if it's an estimate. Is that number real? I have no idea. And I've, I've yet to actually find any credible information that, that that is real the u.s exposure to derivatives at the time was 538 trillion uh, you saw on the deck clock uh there's 600 and something now the deutsche bank on its own has 75 trillion dollars worth of derivatives 
which, you know, if, if they're called in, what happens to the Deutsche Bank? It, it fails. What happens to Ger the German um, economy? Well, you know, and that sets off a chain reaction. <clears throat> so... And derivatives are being, they're, they're basically bets and they're being bet on a, yeah. a whole gambit of things. Yeah. And as I understand it, derivatives are not so much cashed out, they're traded, which is why we've gotten to this ridiculous volume. And at some point they get cashed out. So <laughs> global debt, uh, when we're saying like uh, the US owes 26 trillion, uh, like, well, out there there's like 237 trillion. Um, right. that, was, that was in 2017. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's what I'm saying. These numbers don't mean anything anymore. No. Uh, in the world of debt, um, the United States has about 31%. Japan has 17%, and China has 98 oh. All right. So the, 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 in terms of the world economy, this is the um, GDP. United States has the best GDP. It's the biggest market. Europe is the green bit, um, and so on. <clears throat> but... We're all saturated in debt. <clears throat> so the world reserve currencies, this is the uh, um, total allocated exchange reserves by currency. Uh, there is um, the US dollars, most of it, followed by the Europe. Then uh, there's the Japanese yen. There's the Chinese renminbi down the bottom, right? So, right. so the financial export services around the world, uh, the US, UK, and Luxembourg hold the uh, core of it. That's the Asian uh, cluster over here. But the the sheer size of the Anglo banking system, it, it's just bloated out of control. Now, this will make you laugh. Uh, this is actually the total currency in circulation. <clears throat> Gold, 8.7 trillion. US dollar, 1.7. And then euro. But, but look up here, Bitcoin. Bitcoin shows up. There's more Bitcoin than there are Russian rubles or British UK sterling pounds. And wow. so that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So all major central banks are printing money. So let's have a look at what they're doing. Uh, there's our money definition, you know, M1, M2, M3 and all that. Um, M1 is um, defined as the... Demand uh, M0 plus demand deposits, known as the site deposits, or it's what's in the bank. Mm -hmm. uh, M2 is your money and close substitutes, as in M1 plus small savings and time deposits, known as term deposits, and so on. M3 is borrowed money, defined as M2 plus large time deposits, institutional market money funds, short term, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of jargon here <clears throat> that the average person will just look at this and go, what, what? I don't get it. But there's also a lot of smoke and mirrors to hide the shell game. That's what I say. Just, I was going to say, just before we go on, uh, you know, a lot of people will be listening to this and I'm like, I don't get it. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's really something for economists and academics. And I'm saying to you, no, this is something that every person needs to get their head around because when you do, you're going to say your, it's enough. Your hair will curl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what I like to say to people um, is you probably won't see your superannuation. Um, no. And the reason why that is, is in this stuff. And so it would behove everyone to understand it and not simply trust the money men to do the right thing by us all. <laughs> this, 
<laughs> All right. your, your super is just their next fund. <laughs> That's going to be great. Um, yeah. All right. So here's the estimated global currency in circulation uh, over uh, from 1971 to 2009. US dollar is the green, um, euro is the blue, and the yen is the um, brown. The, yen, the Japanese yen, they, they printed it to death. Um, $1.4 trillion in quantitative easing uh, was authorized. And Okay, well, that's it. They're done. So now derivatives were deregulated in 2001. And from that point, they just started printing money and it went into derivatives, uh, the oil, oil and gas market in particular. Right, but all major currencies valued by gold like over the last 20 years has been in a steady decline. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's oh well. Uh, we'll get to gold. Gold is not necessarily the safe haven we think. Right. So here's the United States M1 uh, supply from so, 1959. So when you talk about money, sorry, sorry, yeah. when you talk about that last slide, where yeah, um, yeah. So just in case people are wondering what that is, that is the value of that. That's that's the the you know amount of gold for equal value or the value of the dollar, ver the, the currency versus actual, um, you know, same amount of gold. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So here's the amount of money in supply. That um, th This is a uh, the road to hyperinflation. Um, so this is, is over history. Um, there is no, uh, the QE1 start, and that's when the thing started to go crazy. And that little spike there is the COVID-19 spike. So... Now, going into, this is July 2019 to April 2020, same graph. So that is this little, the last two or three pixels blown up is that graph. <laughs> right? So, <clears throat> yeah. Okay. So, this, 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 so, all right. So now there's the purchasing power of the dollar. It, it's fallen. It's fallen a lot. Um, so what, what that basically means is, for you to go out and buy physical goods, um, like a loaf of bread, if you were to buy a loaf of bread in 1913, how much would it cost versus how much would it cost in 2019? Right, so that's the United States. Let's look at Europe. See, everyone often sort of bashes the United States like they're the only ones doing this and they're the source of all, all oh, trouble. Yep. Uh, they're the source of some trouble. <laughs> They might even have more uh, responsible for more monkey business than anyone else. But they're certainly not the only ones. This is Europe. Um, money supply, same story. It's been going up steadily. Um, Europe will struggle to st stay Europe. This is um, a situation where all these European central banks and nation states owe each other money. It's like a chain reaction. Um, I actually had a couple of clips uh, i was going to play i don't know if we have time uh, um yeah sure uh because what this this actually uh do you remember clark and doors do you remember these guys yes i do right well this was uh, uh presented in 2010 and so I'm, I'm going to uh see if this works okay um See if this works. Uh, where are you? Stream, share screen, application. Okay. Can you see him? Uh, yes. Let's see if the audio right. comes through. 
Yeah, no, this is this is a joke. This is this is uh, tabled as a joke, but it, it highlights a deadly serious situation that still exists. Roger, yes. Roger. Ah, that's your name. Is it working? Good. And what do you do, Roger? I'm a financial consultant. Ah, financial consultant, eh? Roger, Yeah, yes. terrific. And uh, Roger, how's business at the moment? Not bad, thank you. Uh, been a bit quiet lately. H how do you mean lately? Since the war, been a bit quiet. Fair enough. Okay, Roger, your special subject tonight is the economies of the European community. Mm. Your time starts now. Best of luck. Thank you. How much does Greece owe, Roger? Uh, $367 billion. Correct. And who do they owe it to? Mostly to the other European economies. Correct. How much does Ireland owe? $865 billion. Correct. And who do they owe it to? Other European economies mostly. Correct. How much does Spain and Italy owe? <coughs> $1 trillion each. Correct. Who to? And then Germany. Correct. And how are Germany, France and Britain going, Roger? Well, they're struggling a bit, aren't they? Correct. Why? Because they've lent all these vast amounts of money to other European economies that can't possibly pay them back. Correct. So what are they going to do? They're going to have to bail them out. Correct. Where are they getting the money to do that, Roger? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that one. How much does Portugal owe? Hang on a minute. What was the answer to that earlier question? Just keep answering the questions, Roger. Where is Portugal going to get the money it owes to Germany if Germany can't get back the money that it lent to Italy? Just a minute. What was the answer to the previous question? The question was, how can broke economies yes. lend money to other broke economies yes. who haven't got any money because they can't pay back the money the broke economy lent to the other broke economy and shouldn't have lent it to them in the first place because the broke economy can't pay it back? You're wasting very valuable time, Roger. How much money does Spain owe to Italy? $41 billion, but where are they going to get it? Correct. What does Italy owe to Spain? $27 billion, but they haven't got it. They're broke. Correct. How can they pay each other if neither of them has any money? They're going to get a bailout, aren't they? Correct. And where's the money coming from for the bailout? That's what I'm asking you. Correct. Why are people selling the European currency and buying the US dollar? Because the US economy is so much stronger than the European economy. Correct. Why is that, Roger? Because it's owned by China. Correct. And uh, very well done. And after that round, you've lost a million dollars. I've lost a million dollars. I thought you said well done. Yes, well done. You've only lost a million dollars. That's an extraordinary performance, I've Roger. I've only lost a million dollars. Very well done. And that's quite good, is it? Oh, it's excellent. Sell everything immediately. Quickly. <laughs> Did that work? <laughs> that worked, yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. But that, that, that's actually the... Um, okay, can you, see, can you see him again? Has, has the presentation come up? Yep, it has, yep. Okay, that's the situation we're in. Now, that was a joke, and it's 10 years old now, but the numbers are the same. And we're, we're seeing that every time, for example, when the, the Catalan group uh, tried to secede from Spain, um, there was a draconian response, uh, and the European Union backed them. That's why. Um, yeah, anyway, so, all right, moving on. China. Now, wow. this is China. They've been... Um, the, the, uh, there's a lot of information here to, to, to show that they have not been, how do you say, um, fair actors in this. They're, they're, they're openly doing dodgy things. Um, but they're not the only ones doing dodgy things. Right. So money's been steadily increasing. They had a reset in 2015, and they had quantitative easing restrictions applied, but they still had like an increase in money supply. Now, to put this in context, oh, oh yeah, um, the yuan has steadily uh, what's called appreciated, 
uh, and the, a devalued currency allows the ability to undercut the competition. So um, they've been devaluing the currency. Uh, there's the GFC period uh, there, and that's not a natural pattern. So, um, no. so <clears throat> but uh, put that up against, you know, while the United States was in uh, printing cash, that's what the Chinese are doing. Um, wow. That was the quantitative easing. Uh, they had five trillion. That, that, that they printed more money faster than anyone else. Right. So, uh, and if you so want to know how their financing their Belt and Road Initiative, apart from their low-cost loans from the International Monetary Fund, that's exactly right. It, and remember the shell game, though. I, I I believe there is a massive there's a strategy going on where everyone understands there is a reset going, and it happens to everyone all at once. So when the reset happens, who owns what in physical terms? Who's got what? And then they then they look at the new system. So this is the trade deficit with China. There's the United States finds itself in where uh, more is coming in from China than is uh, going out to China. So th this is the trade war that's actually sort of uh, uh, going down at the moment. But the merchandise trade trade balance, they've had a problem for a long time. Um, so this goes 1895 to 2015. This is the uh, trade balance between the US and everyone else. Um, so they're an export nation up until about 1970. Uh, that was when um, they economically they were in trouble. That's why they had to decouple from the gold standard. They had a lot of economic problems. It was getting to the point where you know they might have to clear insolvency. Uh, but those problems started in their decline in the mid 1960s, right? So everything everything started going pear shaped, and they thought well, we've got to do something. So they started printing money, but in that world, everything moved offshore, and this is actually when the Chinese started actually sort of their rise to their current position. So, all right, uh, United Kingdom, same thing. The, see this steady increase, this nice smooth increase. It's not like they just suddenly started to do it in 2008. And so, same thing, the purchasing power of the British pound. The British pound left the gold standard in 1931, um, and then became attached to the sterling um, silver, as in the pound um, pound sterling. And in they also then floated and became a full fiat currency in 1971. So, <laughs> right. So that's what I'm saying. It's not just the US dollar that did went through these conniptions. It's the whole system all at once. Right. There's Japan. Um, so same thing. Um, they had a slightly different uh, profile. There's, they had the uh, uh, Asian financial crisis to deal with. What happened there? Why is why am I? It doesn't seem to like uh, some of these charts. Hang on, let me just navigate my way back there. Okay, can you can you see that J Japan purchasing power? Yep, got that. Okay, all right. In circulation, so their purchasing power has also gone down. Here's Australia, good old Australia. Uh, when derivatives were deregulated, uh, was you know the, the thing started to go crazy. Um, but our purchasing power from 1971, because we're tied to the US dollar, has dropped. Um, oh well. Mm. And now they're starting to do quantitative easing for the first time. Right, so everyone prints their own money. 
with no packing. <laughs> so in 2008, and so I, I, I started uh, printing these on a color printer. And what you do is you print them out and you leave them on the floor. People think yeah. they're a real $20 note. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, all right. So here's some historical episodes of hyperinflation. Um, Rome, um, World War One, World War Two. You know, it, it, it's understood how this will go. Um, the shock doctrine by Naomi Klein um, described very nicely what happened in Latin America, um, you, 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 especially the actions of the CIA and you know supporting the, the, the Pinochet um, uh, regime and, 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 and all that, and how uh, it, a lot of that was American-backed and what actually happened. Um, give that book a read. Um, Africa, Zimbabwe, the, the, the $100 trillion note. It was worth 30 euro when they discontinued it. <laughs> they, they actually issued a $100 trillion note. Yes. And it was, when they finally cancelled the currency, that, that was worth about 30 euro. <laughs> wow. I mean, so, I do remember the lira back in the good old day. You know, that was, uh, yeah. that was bad enough, but that's, that's crazy. So, all right. Um, now, corporations often don't pay tax, right? Uh, these are the... Um, yep, we know that. Um, this is the um, corporations that don't pay tax in, in the US. Um, and this is down to hedge funds. And Australia, roughly one in three companies, including household names like BHP and Shell, Goldman Sachs, pay no tax in Australia. This is uh, a release from the ATU. Um, um, the uh, um, ACTU. And um, the... Um, Everyone go, yeah, okay, what, what, what's actually happening is, is, is international tax havens where um, you'll have like a country internationally and that's where the head office is and that's where they'll pay all their tax. Mm -hmm. But if that is like the Cayman Islands, or actually the largest tax haven in the world is London. And if there was no tax, London. yeah, London, London. And if there's no tax, uh, then, uh, and they can also give uh, secrecy of who's actually on the board of their companies. So you, you have this thing where no one knows what's going on and it's all perfectly legal and tax is just avoided. So tax is for mm. us, but not for the big boys. Is that what it means? Yeah. I mean, I knew about, I knew about UK <laughs> offshore company, but yep. uh, I didn't know that London was that high up in the... In the London's the heart of London, London is the heart of the financial system. The city of London is a separate country. Uh, I didn't know that, just as is the Vatican. You know, London's the like, like a, and it, it's it's like the banking sector of London operates to a completely set of different rules and laws. Read this book; it actually goes through all that. We are not going to change anything until tax haven laws are just stopped. Um, so the Panama Papers. I encourage our listeners to research the Panama Papers, which is basically uh, proving this to be true. Uh, the Panama Papers refer to 1.5 million leaked encrypted confidential documents where the property of Panama-based law firm Mossack Fonesca, uh, but basically exposing a network of 214,000 tax havens involving people and entities from 200 nations. But they're, they're, they're showing who actually does what. All the, all the large companies, but also a lot of our nation's leaders and everything like that, no, no one pays any tax except for the citizens in their own countries. Um, so this actually was exposed, and, and, and the media, which is bought and paid for by the by the same people, they didn't really cover it, and the whole thing was forgotten. So, but look it up. Yeah. 
Now, read this book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins. Uh, he was one of these guys that used to go and pressure, uh, uh, as, a, as a US government official, um, nation states into handing over their resources. Uh, so he's talking from experience, uh, and it really does show how what the system really is. Uh, he's put a few uh, interviews up on YouTube. I recommend uh, people go and watch those interviews. Um, this empire is like an, unlike any other in the history of the world and has been built primarily through economic manipulation, through cheating, through fraud, through seducing people into our way of life, and through economic hitmen, and I was very much part of that. So we make this big loan. Most of it comes back to the United States. The country is left with the debt plus lots of interest, and they basically become our servants or our slaves. It's an empire. There's no two ways about it. It's a huge empire, and it's been extremely successful. Basically, what economic hitmen are trained to do is build up the American empire and create situations as many resources as possible flow into this country and to our corporations and our government. Sounds right? familiar? Yeah. But that's, that, that's how they've been operating. Um, so so, so take, take that into modern day with what China's doing. Yeah. But it's, 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 that's what I'm saying is, is everything that we're accusing China of doing, we've done ourselves. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, all right. This is the Liebel scandal. Also, uh, this is the interbank lending rate that um, the – the bankers were basically uh, caught rigging this. And it this is actually a bit more esoteric, but what is the LIBOR rate? But they were caught fixing it. And they were taken to court and they were basically let off. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, research that. Uh, but, but this this is to show that, that the um, there is an inside group who are benefited, who, who are uh, um, preferential, given preferential treatment, everyone else is drained. There have been several attempts to audit the U.S. Fed. All have failed so far. Um, this is uh, the last one that was they, they tried to do, where they tried to, in 2015, the Federal Reserve Transparency Act. And so far, they've avoided that. Let's look at the books. Now, gold. Here we go. <clears throat> now, uh, you sent an article out recently where China has, has been busted for selling counterfeit gold. Right. Well, here yeah, is the case. They use millions of dollars as, as backing for loans. Yeah. Yep. yep. Um, you, you, the, the distinct pattern when you look behind the scenes here is criminal behavior is the norm, and there are, and no one's immune to it. Right. So this is um, nation states have been buying gold furiously as this defense against fiat currency meltdown. Since about 2008, uh, where Russia and China are buying more gold than anyone else. But there's something like 10 times the amount of paper gold in the market compared to the amount of physical gold. <laughs> now, the Bank of England is right at the heart of that scandal, where they'll just sell the same bar of gold multiple times. Um, and the gold market has been tainted with a fraud at the scale it's never seen before. Right. So this is another uh, thing I've... Uh, um, um, let's see. Yeah. Um, this was back in 2010, where... Uh, a gold transaction um, where the Chinese uh, PRC government was sold a whole lot of gold uh, through the Bank of England, and it came from America, Fort Knox, as, and that's where it was cast. And they found wow. tungsten, tungsten in it. All right. 
So I've, I've got this clip. You can't find it on YouTube anymore, but I've actually got it. I'll play it for you in a moment. Last fall, Rob Kirby of Kirby Analytics of Toronto reported that China's central bank had discovered some 400-ounce gold-plated tungsten bars amongst those it had recently received from bonded warehouses. It was later learned that at least four counterfeit bars were found that all had come from sources in the United States. As suspicions grow about counterfeit bars amongst those held in bonded warehouse for delivery, either COMEX or London Bullion Market Association contracts or shares or exchange-traded funds, investors could panic. <laughs> right. So um, <laughs> gold bars sold to Chinese Central Bank in 2009. The Bank of England was the broker and the bars were cast in the United States. In 2012, the Chinese were busted doing the same thing. So, <laughs> so I will now play you. Hang on. Um, and I will now go back to sharing. Mm -hmm. So now that we've established that it works, yep. let me know when you can see that. Uh, see, let me know when you can see that. Yep, it's up. Right. Okay, now this is uh, was uh, a German. On, um, on German mainstream TV. It's got English subtitles. Uh, it's the only one I could find at the time. Um, and I've since tried looking for it on YouTube and it's been memory hold. So luckily I downloaded it. 1200 Grad muss das reine Gold jetzt heiß sein, damit es schön fließt. Die Kilobarren kühlen sehr schnell ab. Wasser hilft dabei. Schon nach 30 Sekunden kann der Mitarbeiter sie mit der bloßen Hand anfassen. Dann bekommt der Goldbarren seinen Herkunftsstempel und seine Seriennummer. Beides lässt auf Echtheit schließen, aber man erlebt im Goldgeschäft immer wieder Überraschungen. Gute Fälschungen sind schwer zu erkennen. Der Leiter der Goldgießerei, Wilfried Hörner, ist seit 30 Jahren im Geschäft. Er weiß, wie ideenreich Goldfälscher sein können. Diese Fälschung hat ein Mitarbeiter entdeckt. Als er diesen Baren sah, kam er zu mir und sagte, der gefällt mir nicht. Ich fragte, warum? Ist doch alles in Ordnung? Er gefällt mir nicht. Wir haben entschieden, ihn aufzuschneiden. Und wie Sie sehen, die Nase des alten Fuchses hatte recht. Er hat Wolfram im Gold entdeckt. Dieser Baren, der wurde von einer Bank angekauft. Und die Bank hatte dann die unliebsame Überraschung, dass nicht alles Gold war, was glänzt. Okay. Did you get wow. all that? Yep. And, and right. Luckily, I speak German, so I didn't have to try and uh, read it all the, the time. The, the subtitles are there. It's not very clear, but it's, it's all I've got of the original source. It's been memory hold. This is the problem with uh, uh, digital book burning. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Fahrenheit four five one is going to come to Kindle very soon. <laughs> um, all right. So where were we? Um, Let's, let me just get that up. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Coffee. Thank you, sweetheart. I'm being recorded. I've just I've just had a coffee delivered. Um, so, all right. Nice so, get one of those. yeah, my daughter brings them up, and. Um, she, she makes these, uh, it's the equivalent of like an iced coffee with a, um, a caramel syrup inlay. Hmm. Very nice. Um, all right. So you can see that, right? You can see yes. the screen. Right. The next thing was uh, when this happened, um, Germany said, right, um, 
because this came from the United States. Germany said, we want our gold back. Yeah, the, uh, um, the United States has been storing Germany gold in case the Russians invaded. Uh, not all of it, like 40% of it was in the United States and a big chunk of it was in Paris. Right. Germany asked to audit its gold reserves held by the U.S. Treasury. The U.S. Treasury said no. <laughs> right. Uh, I know it's the Treasury or the U.S. Fed, but whoever was holding the, um, the gold, but they, they said no. And Germany demanded its gold to be returned immediately. And get this, a seven-year delivery schedule was agreed upon. That implies Ooh. they didn't have the gold, that they'd sold yeah. the gold. I mean, if you have it, you chuck it on a ship or a plane or whatever, hmm. probably a plane. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying is just because it's behind closed doors doesn't mean it's still there. Trust us. Right mm. now, the, the, they've now completed that schedule um, and everything, but that suggests that the gold had to be mined and smelted. <laughs> if they <laughs> just didn't. But what's actually going on in there? That, that that is a you know trust me yeah. So and this is what the U.S. Federal Reserve thinks it's going to do. Now this is pre-COVID. This was their plan. They just just uh, plan to. Um, this was the U.S. Congressional Budget of 2016. It was very simple. They just uh, they were just going to print more money into oblivion. So. They have no plan. So the great unwinding of the financial sector showed that the smartest mathematical minds on the planet, backed by some of the deepest pockets, had not built a sleek engine of permanent prosperity, but a clown car of trade swaps and double dares that inevitably fell to bits. Right. <laughs> this is where I think we are going, and this is who will lead us there. Mm -hmm. uh, so here's the, the net position that, that we're in. We have an interlocking set of issues. Now, normally when we have a financial systemic meltdown, it, it, it's a pretty simple matter. You know, uh, resettle fiat currencies, restructural debt, and grow into a new system, shoot all the politicians, and often they'll start a, a war, a good old-fashioned war to you know, tide things over. This time around, though, we've got an energy supply disrupted. Uh, we, we, we've got peak energy. And so, oh dear, so we can't sustain growth. You know, growth is related to energy. And mm -hmm. oil, gas, and coal now are becoming unstable, uh, and renewables are not really in a fit state to step into the breach. We cannot grow the economy. So now, oh, the game becomes changed an alternative energy system at a time when we've got a financial meltdown. Um, so we've got to rebuild all infrastructure to meet the requirements of the new energy system. This is, say, like the alternative you know, EV system. And that brings us to, well, natural raw materials are unavailable, and, you know, peak minerals. Um, and this is also related to the energy. We can't mine at the same rate if, if the energy is unavailable. So we cannot supply raw materials for construction or manufacture at the needed rate or volume, if all, if at all. And so we need to assess really what's needed. And of course, we're going to mine our rubbish dumps, um, among other things. Now, then we bring us to this one here. My model for environmental um, disruption is not conventional. I'm actually looking at things like the number of species dying off, the oceans becoming um, acidic, uh, the um, industrial agriculture failing. That 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 that's that's um, uh, quite a difficult um, um, systemic uh, thing that we're looking at. So what that means is we can't run the existing system for very long. And what I'm talking about here is our industrial agriculture to feed us. That's a thing that's sitting in the background. And underneath that, 
Well, population overshoot, population is increasing at all levels, and that is putting pressure on all other sectors except finance, which is virtual. And most people have a few relevant skills outside the existing paradigm, paradigm. So we're looking at willful ignorance and aggressive apathy because people just say, this is too hard. Yep. Right. So are these issues really unknown to our senior global decision makers? Are they, are they really unaware? No, of course not. No and what, what happens to due process and democracy when it's not around to support everyone? And then put that in context of who really runs our system you know, the corporate ownership and, you know, the banking sector and all that. So uh, how, how do you think this is going to go? And are they going to be nice about this? We're coming to the end, by the way. So this is the, at a, at a macro scale, we're seeing a changing of the guard. Um, this is like all the empires over the last couple of centuries uh, from, you know, Venetian, Portugal, Spain, Netherlands, France, British Empire and the United States how long they went for, like when was the global currency and um, when they transferred from one unit to another, uh, it was usually some kind of civil disruption like the French Revolution, Napoleonic Wars or World War One, the Great Depression and World War Two, where the uh, torch passed from the British Empire to the United States. I think we're in something like that now. Um, so wealth inequality. Um, okay, here's, here's some slides. These were made in, in 2010, but they're, they're just as valid now uh, because nothing's actually changed, which is interesting. But you've got like these, this, this default circle where you go mortgage lenders, mortgage banks, investment banks, all the way out to uh, small countries, Europe, um, individual states in the United States. The United States uh, will be the last one to default. Uh, at the time, the thinking was Europe was weaker and Europe will go first. Now it's anyone's guess who's weaker and who will go first. But you have this thing where, where you have like um, things will transfer from the consumer to the corporate to sovereign to fiat currency structure failure. That's the circuit we're going to go through. And the same guy, Gordon Tang, uh, developed this idea of things will move from the financial to the economic to the political. That's the evolution. And he had this basic idea of we're going to start with a financial crisis, you know, uh, then we'll move to an economic crisis and then a political crisis. Um, and now all of these things have been compressed into the same window. About 10 years ago, it was possible to actually yeah. see, see the difference. So, could we please have a, a genuine conversation about this? All right. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah mate that is well if anyone's watching this and they're like i don't understand it i seriously encourage you rewind watch it again don't just sit there and say oh that's above me because it's, no it's not it's it's everyone can do this uh anyone can do this the problem is we expect this to be more complicated than it is and what's actually happened is the situation we find ourselves in is based in fraud. You know, we, we've been sold an illusion. And when we actually look behind the curtain, our mind is literally repelled by that illusion. Because that, that's our life. Yeah. That, that, it's like, oh, that can't be possible. How can that ever be possible? But yeah. it is. Yeah. So um, guys like uh, the Peak Prosperity guys recommend, they you, you, you find something that, uh, whether it's this presentation or the crash course presentation, 
watch it again and again and again. And a lot of people will go through the seven st five stages of human grief uh, with this sort of stuff, and they'll get quite angry and aggro. And it, it, it's interesting to sort of watch. Um, uh, it, it's it's all it, it's all someone else's fault. This this is the um, origin. You know, uh, the anger, the the underlying cause of anger is being directed. Like in the states at the moment, they're rioting over. It used to be who who was going to the bathroom. Remember that the transgender. Yeah. All right, and before that it was race, and then it was uh, um, gender, um, and that, now we've actually got some riots happening, which which uh, seem to be very political. And um, orange man bad, yeah. but the but mm. the problem is it doesn't matter who's sitting in any in the White House or in the Kremlin or in Parliament of Australia. None of that matters. The underlying system itself um, is is in deep deep trouble. And it's it's yeah. it's decisions made decades ago that have created that, and which means it's not going to be fixed easily. So it begs the question: What can we do? Right. What can anyone do? There is a couple of layers to this. First of all, I think at the moment we've got a a, a problem. We can't even discuss these problems because even yeah. the the average person will take the time to fight you. Remember that uh, uh, scene from The Matrix where Morpheus is is walking through the crowd and Neo is trying to follow him. He says, "These people are so uh, dependent on the system, they will fight to defend it to the death, yeah. and they'll think they're doing the right thing." Right. So the first point is at at the moment we've got to come together in large enough numbers to initiate genuine change and actually understand what we're looking at. So for a start, this information and information like it has got to become public knowledge. That's the first step. Uh, at the moment, we are being exhausted with distractions. Like, uh, really? At, at, at the moment, it, it's um, if they're not shouting, it's all patriarchy. They're ripping up statues, or say, from 200 years ago um, uh, in the name of racism, while ignoring what we are actually doing now in places like Yemen. That the largest humanitarian crisis ever is unfolding in Yemen, and we are part and parcel to that. On the wrong, on the on the on the bad side, we are ignoring that. You know, so it, it's this this level of ignorance that is around us is allowing the situation to continue. So once we get to the point where all parties involved understand, right, and yes, public you know, confidence will crash, and yes, the system will crash. That's inevitable. So when we get through the the uh, system crash, what I believe is humanity is going to be herded. An attempt would be to herd humanity in a particular direction to accept crushing austerity measures and food shortages, right? Um, yeah. And if we go along with it, because that's what we've been programmed to do, then we get our police state world, right? Alternatively, um, the average person can understand that instead of actually just letting someone else make their own food and do their own thing and, 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 and depend on someone else to do all their thinking, we're going to have to do a lot of that ourselves. Like 500 years ago, the average person either grew their own food or knew personally the person who did. Yeah. We're probably going to have to go back to something like that while an attempt to maintain our existing levels of education. And, 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 and I, I think our technology will probably degrade too if we don't solve the energy problem. So the first thing is understanding for the average person. People like you and me uh, are relatively unusual. We're, uh, we're seen as kooks and crackpots. 
leave 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 the leave the establishment leave our leaders to do the right thing and and and, and stop wasting our time um the, the rat race look at the, look at my furrows of worry look at my big bang balance uh, so um Right, and all the distraction for an election in a country where it doesn't really matter where the who, who takes office in the end, anyway. Yeah, exactly, but but the people on the ground, if they understood that, they'd riot, for mm. real, right? And that's what they've got. To, they're, they're trying to avoid. So once the average person understands the nature of the game and what what are the boundary conditions of the future, and so well, we've got um, money is becoming unreliable, so it's going to have to you know something else is going to have to happen there. Ownership, well, who owns all this stuff anyway? Um, energy, yeah. where's our energy come from, and who owns it? And when they want to start trying military action uh, against other nation states, should we go along with that? Right. So then, completely restructure everything. Um, now we're at the crossroads. We either uh, go back to an 1800s level of technology, where you know, everyone more or less sort of gets by and does their own thing, and um, um, and the basic unit will become the small town, yeah. you know, a, a small town of say a hundred thousand people, and that and that, that that becomes the um, self-sufficient unit. Or we come together and we develop using technology. And there's a lot of things like you know, blockchain and digitization, and there's some amazing technology out there. If we can somehow harness that to solve the problem within the boundaries conditions. Mm -hmm. And with that 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 uh, future, but we cannot do that while most of us are asleep and fighting each other. Right. Yeah. So step one, get to the point where the average person understands this stuff. Without that, nothing happens. Yeah. So that's that's really the, you know that's part of why we're bringing this information to everybody, and we hope that that you really take on board what Simon's laid out in s such detail with such great research. I mean, man, um, I don't know how you do it because I, I get when you lay it out that way, I get it. I wouldn't have had the patience to be able to navigate and put all that together, especially in such a, a compelling way. Uh, thank you. But you have to remember, I've been looking at the, I've had the luxury of looking at this for like 15, 20 years. Yep. Right. So after 15 or 20 years, you can pull things together. When someone's looking at this for the first time, <laughs> well, hey, yeah. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> no, mate, thank you very much. So um, everybody who's been tuned in into this, uh, please leave comments, uh, whether you're on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, IGTV. Um, if you have any comments or questions, please leave them and we'll we'll get back to you. And uh, we may even do a Q&A around this one if there's enough people interested in. You know, and, and please share this, subscribe, and uh, especially to the playlist, but also share this with people you know because this information as, as Simon says, it starts with awareness. Let's get this information out to people. You can do your own research. The books are there um, and other resources. Go and find the information yourself and, um, and uh, form your own opinion. Mate, thank you so much for being on again. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Uh, thank you for the immense effort of putting all that together once again. Really grateful. And I uh, hope you'll come back on again sometime soon. Certainly will. Awesome. Well, mate... Enjoy the rest of your day in Finland. And um, next next time your daughter brings a coffee, and please tell her I'd like one too. <laughs> she's, she's great. And uh, uh, she usually waits around and says, oh, give me a rating out of 10. <laughs> and she's normally running around 9.8 <laughs> and 9.9. .9. Uh, 
but uh, she managed to time it when when uh, I'm having a difficult time. She, uh, maybe she can hear the swearing or something, but she'll often bring one in at the time. <laughs> it's great. All right, I'll, I'll let her know. Yeah, do that, mate. Thanks so much. All right, thanks everyone for tuning in, and we'll uh, see you again soon on Main Unstream. Have a great evening. Bye.